Hollow Windows and Doors of Wisconsin has six lines to fit your style and financing to fit any budget. Through November 30th, choose 12 months, no payments and no interest, plus 20% off installation. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. For people in the media who wonder why the general public despise them, here is Exhibit A. All right, the the jury in the Rittenhouse case is out. It is day three. We are continuing to monitor that. If there are any developments, we will bring that to you. People keep saying, when is the jury going to get a verdict? When is it going to get a jury going to get a verdict? And the truth is nobody knows. And people are, I understand, trying to read things into this. Oh, this means that the jury is getting ready to convict. Oh, this means the jury is getting ready to acquit. It, you just never know. That That's just the reality. Take it from somebody who tried over 100 federal criminal jury trials. You, you just don't know what juries are doing. I say um, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it's actually true. I I was always amazed at how rarely I got verdicts on Thursdays. And, and now hear me out on this, especially in trials that lasted a couple weeks. And I actually, at some point in time, I, when you'd be allowed to contact juries, I asked them a little bit. And it, it's kind of human nature because if you return a verdict on a Thursday, what that means is for a lot of people who work, you, you know, you're, you're, you're off – as long as you're on the jury. But you return the verdict on a Thursday, that means you got to go back to work on Friday. I, I Tongue-in-cheek, I cannot tell you how often I had cases where the jury um, f- finished deliberations for the day on Thursday, went home, came back on Friday, and within an hour on Friday morning, they had the verdict. <laughs> because, okay, we're ready for the weekend. Now, I'm not predicting that's what's going to happen here. It's just an observation that, at least in my personal case, I rarely got verdicts on Thursday. Or a lot of times... If they could come back on Friday, they did. I'm not predicting that's going to happen here. Don't know where they are in the deliberations. And anybody who tells you that they do, they're, they're just blowing smoke because you, you just don't know. The jury hasn't sent any notes, sent any notes out saying that they're hung or they're having trouble, you know, deliberating. So I, I suspect that, that what's going on here is what we've predicted all along, that you've got kind of two schools of thought. You've got, you know, a number of people who, based on the jury instructions and the state's burden of proof, namely that they have to prove that this wasn't self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. You've got a lot of people who are in that camp, and you probably have a few people who, <clears throat> regardless of, of what the instructions of the law are, are troubled by the fact that you've got a 17-year-old kid who shows up in this situation carrying a loaded firearm, and two people are dead, and a third people a person is, is injured. And you're kind of wrestling with all that stuff. So I, there's really a lot to digest and a lot to process. And once again, once there's a verdict we will we're geared up to bring it to you and to discuss extensively okay the development today is as follows as we have talked about before the the jurors do not come directly to the courthouse in the morning um this is no, normally if you're on jury duty you know you, you go home at night you, you drive down if you're in Milwaukee County jury duty. You, you drive down, or you take the bus down, or whatever, and you you park, and then you assemble in whatever the jury room is. Because of the interest in this trial, and also the fact that they're doing everything they possibly can to try to shield the jury from outside influence, the jurors 
don't individually come to the courtroom in the morning. What they're trying to avoid is some juror driving around the courthouse and being exposed to the people who are banging the drums or waving the signs or carrying the guns or whatever. They, they don't want them influenced by the the various protesters and street performers and folks who are part of the circus on, on the courthouse steps. So what they have been doing is on a daily basis, they have been directing the jurors to assemble at an undisclosed location. And I, I don't know if it varies from day to day. I, I don't know if it's another... I, I would doubt that they say just meet in a parking lot. My my guess is it's probably some other government location that's secure, you know, where you, you can show up and, you know, people can't get immediate access to it. But, but regardless, so the jurors go to this location, they all drive there, and then collectively they're all put on a bus, and apparently the, the windows of the bus are like they, they put tape over them or they put construction paper or whatever so you can't see out, and then the jurors all collectively are brought together to the courthouse, and then collectively at the end of the day they're they're taken back, and the idea is to shield them from influence because they're trying to keep them anonymous and they're trying to keep them, um, I guess, protected in their identity secret. That's what they are trying to do. Well, what happens yesterday is as the bus is leaving the courthouse, there's apparently a vehicle that is following the bus, trying to see where it goes, and presumably with the idea that they're trying to identify the jurors in some way, shape, or form. So the, the police notice this. The car that is following slash stalking the, the bus that contains the jurors uh, allegedly commits a series of traffic violations, including blowing through a red light to make sure it doesn't lose the, the bus. At that point in time, the cops pull over the car. So that the bus goes on and so the jurors aren't identified or anything like that. But they pull over the car. Now, here's where it gets particularly interesting. The person who is arrested for, for running the red light and following the bus issued several traffic citations. Apparently, um, he identifies himself as someone named James J. Morrison and says he is a producer for NBC News employed by MSNBC. He then says that he was ordered, instructed to follow the jury bus by his boss in New York, who he identifies as Irene Byon, B-Y-O-N. All right, so he says, look, I'm I'm just following orders here. Um, they, they told me, go, go follow this. Now, here's the development since then. Apparently, first thing this morning, the police... And the, um, the the media liaison that they have in, in Kenosha goes into the media room and they go up to the people at NBC and they say, do you know this James J. Morrison guy? And they deny. Well, we don't know who he is. Well, later on this morning, Channel 5 in Chicago, which is the NBC affiliate, has, according to the Kenosha News, confirmed that an NBC producer was the party involved Thursday morning. So at least according to the Kenosha News, Channel 5 in Chicago is confirming, yes, that was an NBC producer that was there. Um, this Irene Byan, all I know is if you go to the NBC News website, you find that there is an Irene Byan who has been employed for the last four months, she's new, um, as a what they call a field producer. She's based out of New York, but she is a field producer for 
you know, the NBC. And I don't know if she works for MSNBC or NBC, but the, the parent company. So I, I don't know the validity of it, but you have this guy who's arrested saying, hey, I work for NBC News, and I was doing this on instructions of my boss. There is a boss by the name he gave in New York City, and Channel 5 in Chicago is confirming that he was, in fact, an NBC producer. So you can take that for what it, what it's worth. The judge, in this case, has now banned MSNBC from cover, from in the building coverage, not going to let them there anymore. He can't stop them from doing stuff outside. But he's clearly unhappy that you have this news outlet that is stalking slash following, trying to ascertain the identity of the jurors. Our number, 855 that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think of this of this tactic? Now, I mean, on the one hand, I guess if you're NBC, and we're going to assume for the sake of argument that the story is true. Now, it might be that it's complete BS and this guy's making this all up and it's just this bad mistake and Channel 5 in Chicago has made a mistake by confirming that the guy who got arrested was, in fact, you know, one of their employees. So that's always possible. But assuming this story is as it appears to be, that you've got a, a local guy working for a national net news network who's instructed by his boss in New York, follow the jury, presumably with the idea of trying to find out who their identities are, get photos of them, put them on TV or whatever, while they're in the middle of jury deliberations. Now, on the one hand, I, I guess you could have a news outlet that says, well, we're just we're just doing our job. We are trying to bring more information and more insight to the, the general public. We want to see these jurors. If we can get photographs of them, we'll use that to try to, you know, we'll identify it so we can figure out who the jurors are. I guess that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is to say, my God, what a bunch of slime balls. And, and have you no ethical standards a- at all? That in the middle of, of this type of trial, that you would risk upsetting the entire thing by stalking jurors, trying to get their identities for whatever purpose that you might use. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If the judge is as hacked off as I think he is about this, I think, at least in my opinion, he has every right to do this. And the people who made this decision to try to stalk, follow, whatever, the jury in the middle of deliberations. Heads should roll, people should lose their jobs, and these folks should be absolutely ashamed of themselves. So legitimate journalistic practice or just a pond scum move. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, apparently on Court TV, they've got some media experts saying, oh, th- this happens all the time. That, that's th- this, is, this is what we do. We stalk jurors. Their identities are supposed to be anonymous. In the middle of trials, we try to find out their identity so we can perhaps be ready to line them up for interviews after the verdict. Well, here's the bottom line of that. First of all, that is ethically questionable. Secondly, it is slimy. Third, it puts the trial at risk. And if this is what the mainstream media is doing on a regular basis, trying to identify jurors by following their buses 
while they are in deliberations. Well, if that's what passes for journalistic ethics, there are no such thing as journalistic ethics. I think if this is true, and I don't think at this point in time anybody's denying it, that this was the scheme cooked up by MSNBC or NBC or whoever to stalk the jurors to try to determine their identities, to follow the bus in order to, I don't know, try to photograph or film people as they're getting off the bus, try to find out where their cars are parked, try to see if you can identify their license plates. That's what this whole thing, if that's what this whole thing is all about, shame on NBC, shame on MSNBC, and if this is what passes for the way the news media operates, well, maybe it's time for some house cleaning. Now, somebody is saying, I, I don't understand. I thought the jurors weren't sequestered. Why Why are they on a bus? Again, I can't explain it any more or straightforwardly. They, they want the judge correctly, in my mind, wants to stop the jurors from being exposed to the people that are at the courthouse, etc., that are banging the drums and the signs and things like that. He doesn't want them coming in individually to deliberations. He doesn't want them driving around trying to find parking spaces. So there is an undisclosed location where they all meet in the morning. And again, I don't know what the location is. My guess is it's probably some other secure government facility somewhere in Kenosha County. Don't know, but that would, if, if I were the judge, that's what I would do. So they come to this secure location. It's a secret location. They all get on the bus together. They all drive back. If, for example, the media found out that, hey, everybody's meeting at the, I don't know, at the, they're everybody's stopping at the, the park and ride, you know, by Brown Deer Road. Well, okay, you know what would happen? They'd be there. They'd film, they'd take all the license plates of all the cars. They'd run those license plates and they'd try to figure out, you know, who, who the identity of the jury is. This is an effort to try to keep the jurors anonymous. I applaud the judge for what he's doing. And to me, it's just an extremely slimy tactic. Is it, is it illegal? Well, I mean, running red lights and stuff is illegal. But is it a tactic that we think that responsible media outlets should be employing? And my answer would be um, no. Let's start with Kay. Kay, you're on WTMJ. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, when you first read the story, I thought, is the driver from the Inquirer? Because that's the type of tactics, you know, that they would use. And I'm thinking... Walter Conkright's got, Conkright's got to be rolling over in his grave because this is not journalism in any way, shape, or form, in my opinion. This is, it's slime, and it's, I, I too applaud the judge because any little thing can cause a problem with this case, and, and you don't, in this trial, and you don't want that. Well, well, right. I mean, and I'm, and I'm trying to think of, of comfort level of the, the jurors. And again, that if clearly what this guy was trying to do and what he was ordered to do, assuming the story is as the story is, he was ordered to try to find out where the jurors are. Let's see if we can identify them. Can we get their license plates? Can we find out who this jury is? And after three weeks of trying to keep this jury anonymous, that's the last thing you need before they have a verdict that you get some media outlet that suddenly is going to run with the identity identity of the jurors and things like that. I mean, it's just, it's a recipe for disaster, and it does nothing to inform the public. That's that's the other bigger picture. It, it doesn't add to our understanding. All it does is serve to potentially screw up a, a trial that's taken three weeks to conduct. Yeah, it, it, to me, it's more like, it would be more like gossip mongers. I, I, I don't care what juror number one does or drives. I want to... Right. I don't know, a, a, a good outcome to the case, whichever yeah. way it is. 
without outside influence. Well, well, right. And, and thanks to call. Okay. And look, and I don't know. Typically, you know, once a case ends, um, jurors are given. I mean, once the case ends and once the jury is discharged, if jurors make the decision that they want to come forward and talk to the media, uh, there, there's very little that can be done to stop them. Now, a lot of times jurors agree among themselves that we're not going to do interviews and, and things like that, because what goes on in the jury room, I think a lot of people believe it's appropriate to stay in the jury room. But if after this trial, Somebody, you know, juror number 11 decides they want to reach out to Fox News or MSNBC or ABC or whatever and say, hey, I want to do an interview. Well, OK, that that's them doing that. But that's not what this is all about. This is about trying to break the shield of anonymity to identify them. And by the way, who knows? what they intend to do with this information. I mean, now, again, the, the first story is, well, we're, we're, we're just trying to find out for who this is for, for post-juror interviews. Well, that, that's easy to say that that's what they were intending to do, but you can make an argument that, gee, if they were able to identify who half the jury is, do you think for one minute that some of these news outlets would hesitate to say, okay, we've identified juror number 11 by the license plate, and it turns out to be Jeff Wagner. And Jeff Wagner, this we, we've gone back and we've looked at things that he posted on his blog, and this is what he said. Do you think that if they got that information, that they would hesitate for one instant if they thought it could get clicks or generate news? Do you think they would hesitate for one instant to publish that information or run stories with it during the course of the trial? And if you do, again, as I often caution people, be sure to duck your shoulder when you fall off the turnip truck so you don't hurt yourself. This is, it's just, if it's not if doing what they did is is not illegal, and it probably isn't, you know, maybe maybe it just flat out, you know, should be on, you know, something like, you know, this. And and after after the trial, that's a whole different dynamic. But to do something to pull a stunt like this in the middle of a trial, when you've gone to all the lengths that they've gone to over the course of the last several weeks to try to keep the jury from being influenced and to try to keep their identities out of the news. You know, for for a news outlet to think that this is responsible journalism is just mind boggling to me. So, I, I mean, I understand there's a limit as to what the judge can do at this point in time. And he's responded by banning NBC or MSNBC from the, the courthouse. He certainly has the right to do that. I think other people can respond in other ways saying, my God, what a slimy thing to do. And that's kind of how I see it. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. NBC News in full cover your you know what mode. Now here, so again, the story and we talked about in the first segment of the program, there's a, a producer who works for NBC who is following the, the jury bus, blows through red lights, gets stopped. What he tells the police, he identifies himself as, as a guy working for NBC. He says, 
It's a producer for NBC News. He says he was told to follow the jury bus by his boss in New York, identified as Irene Bayan, who is, of course, a, a field producer, as I was saying, for NBC in New York. So the guy, when he gets stopped after blowing the red light while following the jury bus, he says, hey, I, I work here um, and um, this this is the deal that I um, I was I was told to, to follow the bus. Okay, which is what leads to our discussion. Now, apparently, initially, NBC this morning, when they went into the media room, denied knowing this guy. But Chicago's um, NBC affiliate, Channel 5, confirmed this. Okay, so that, that's sort of the background. He says, yeah, I was told, you know, quote, unquote, I was told to follow the bus by my, my boss. All right, so here's the, the statement that NBC News is putting out right now. Last night, a freelancer received a traffic citation. While the traffic violation took place near the jury van, the freelancer never contacted or intended to contact the jurors during deliberations and never photographed or intended to photograph them. We regret the incident. We'll cooperate with authorities on any investigation, which, of course, opens the question that... Well, yes, I, I know he never contacted them. That That's clear. He never photographed them um, because he, he got stopped before that. He never intended to photograph them. Well, okay, then the question is, why, why did the field producer in New York instruct him to follow the, the jury van in the first place? Because that's what he's saying. Or what, what was he supposed to do? Just kind of follow the jury van to make sure they get where they're going safely? I mean, I mean, really, at some point in time, you just want to say, come on. Uh, their, their story is, well, yes, he was a freelancer, um, and, and he, yes, it was just it was just sort of happenstance that he happened to be in the area of the jury van. And we're shocked. We're actually absolutely shocked that there's gambling going on here. Can you imagine this? I mean, really? I mean, what 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 was he doing? What was the purpose? Now, did he intend to, like, contact the jurors when they got off the bus? No. But let, let's face it. He was up to something. That's why they instructed him to follow him in the first place. And I guess these news media outlets tend to think that we all must be complete and total idiots instead of simply saying, oh, we were trying to identify the jurors and we wanted to be able to identify him because we wanted to be able to contact them after the trial or we wanted to learn their identities to determine whether or not anybody might uh, I don't have a background that you know they shouldn't be on the jury or whatever but instead it's this well this freelancer never contacted them or intended to contact them and never intended to photograph them well maybe intended to photograph their cars so they could get their identities or things like that um, it's one of these weasel statements from NBC News the operative question would be well why exactly did you have him follow Following the jury, what was the purpose of that? Were you going to deny that too? But oh, you can't deny it because the guy says that he'd been instructed by his boss in NBC New York to follow the jury van. All right, when we come back, what is it about guns? Stick around. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We're going to carry this next discussion over into the next hour, but I want to I want to start it now because it, it is an important discussion to have about where we go in the state moving forward. As we talked about yesterday, the the judge in the Rittenhouse case kicked. 
the count six. Count six was the the charge against Rittenhouse um, that that makes it illegal for sixteen and seventeen year olds to carry rifles or to carry weapons in in public, a- absent like hunting situations or trap shooting or things like that. The judge found that that law was um, that there was another provision of the law. That, that said that it, it, carrying only applies if the gun itself is illegal. Okay, if the firearm, the rifle, is a, or the shotgun is short-barreled. All right, and r- without regard to the merits of that, and the judge may in fact be right, but the, if the judge is right, there is a provision now in Wisconsin law which says that, that 16 and 17-year-olds can take loaded shotguns as long as they're not sawed off and wander around the streets. Now, let's let's move from, okay, you, the Rittenhouse is the Rittenhouse case, okay? But, I mean, put this in different context, because this is a much broader issue than, than Kyle Rittenhouse. This is, what if you have street gangs in, in the city of Milwaukee, or in Madison, or Kenosha, or in Janesville, or wherever? Street gangs who decide, hey, this is what we're now going to do as part of our regular apparel. What we're going to do is is we're going to walk around with shotguns and we're going to walk around with AR-15s and we're going to march up and down the, the streets and we're going to go over to the basketball courts and this is how we're going to hang out. We're all going to be carrying loaded guns or we're all going to be carrying shotguns or whatever. We're going to exercise our right under open carry and, and this is, is what we're going to do. All right, yesterday, and I have been very, very critical of the the people that have been gathering outside the courthouse. I think that what it is not constructive. We cannot allow to happen after this verdict comes down. We cannot allow to happen in Kenosha what happened in Kenosha in August of 2020. And I think I really believe that authorities have learned from that. And there's going, however, this verdict, whatever the verdict is, there's going to be a huge law enforcement presence supplemented by the National Guard. And they're not going to let this get out of control. But yesterday, you've got you got people that are yelling back and forth and hitting each other with signs. And in the middle of this shows up some guy who identifies himself as Maserati Mike. We all have names for ourselves, I guess, nowadays. And he shows up and and he's, he's got a flak jacket on and he's wandering through this volatile situation and he's carrying an AR-15. And I'm thinking, all right, this is the last thing that this area needs right now is somebody bringing a gun, handgun, shotgun, loaded rifle, unloaded rifle. The last damn thing you need in Kenosha right now is people, non-law enforcement types, wandering around with with firearms because nothing good is going to come of that. But this raises the larger issue about the the whole concept of open carry. And I understand the Second Amendment. And and look, and and I I don't have problems with people owning firearms and lawfully using firearms. And I have no problem with the whole concept of self-defense. And yes, if somebody is busting into your house at 2 o'clock in the morning and you confront them and, you know, and, and you... The, the facts justify you having to use a firearm for self-defense. I have no problem with that. If you're in a situation where, I don't know, you've got somebody that's trying to carjack you and you've got a concealed gun and, you know, you're fearing for your life, I, I have no problem with that. But when you have people who just walk the streets with, with these, these firearms 
and I don't I mean I don't care what your political persuasion is. I don't care where you are. It's it's just it is a recipe for for disaster. It's a recipe for a repeat Rittenhouse, and it can happen in so many different contexts. So Wisconsin is an open carry state. And as long as you're not carrying it in a prohibited area like a courthouse or, or something like that or a schoolyard, um, the, the law allows people to openly display these firearms in public. Is this a good idea? 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Can we learn anything from the Rittenhouse case beyond the verdict that might allow us to avoid having a similar or potentially even worse situation occur as we move forward. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, can the Second Amendment, can it coexist with the idea that maybe, I don't know, showing up in volatile public situations armed to the teeth is not a productive thing for you for the people around you, for the community, and for society. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand it's kind of a broad question, but you know what, I get, what I'm getting at. Um, we will discuss this after the news. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Okay, so Mike, professional journalist, before you go, yes. let me ask you a question. First of all, I just I just sent out a tweet. It is the first time, I think, in my life that I ever wrote the word weaselly, which is, in fact, a word. You know, I've said, what, 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 you know, weasel, but, you know, weaselly, and I did correct, I spelled it correctly, W-E-A-S-E-L-L-Y, weaselly, that, that's it, the, the, the process of being a weasel, I guess, be, behaving in a weaselly fashion. So anyhow, my, my tweet was talking about this, this now that NBC News has issued this statement about what happened, and my comment was, what a weaselly statement by NBC <laughs> News. That was that was my thought. Um, so, I mean, here, here's the deal, if we recount the bidding. A, a guy who now turns out works for NBC News, is employed by NBC News out of Chicago, might be a freelancer, but he works for them. He is instructed by the field producer in New York to follow the jury. Mm-hmm. And in the process of following the jury bus yesterday, he violates various traffic laws, including running through a red light, which gets him, him pulled over, at which point in time he identifies himself. I'm, you know, I'm Michael whatever, um, and I'm doing this at the instruction. I was told by my boss, who is Irene Bayan, in New York, I was told to follow the jury bus. Okay, so that that's the story. The... NBC News, I have their statement. This is what they say. Last night, a freelancer received a traffic citation. While the traffic violation took place near the jury van, the freelancer never contacted or intended to contact the jurors during deliberations and never photographed them or intended to photograph them. So when I I parse this, it's, well, he didn't contact them because... Okay, he, 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 you know, he didn't get to the bus. He didn't intend to contact them during deliberations. Oh, okay. And he never photographed or intended to photograph them. To which my question is, then why was he instructed to follow them in the first place? Is that a fair question? 
I think it is. I think it's a little bit like the Aaron Rodgers situation we went through a couple weeks ago. Bill Clinton we talked about as well, where it's like, okay, he wasn't contacting them. Right. But at the moment, they were not deliberating when he was by them at that moment. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he, he never photographed them. Okay. Well, no, he didn't get a chance to photograph them because he ran through the red. Never intended to photograph them, which again begs the question, why were you there? Were you, were your, was your intent to photograph their cars? What, so that you could get their license plates, so you could identify them? Mm-hmm. Was your intent to follow one or more of the jurors home when they got in their cars from wherever they are? and left so you could identify the house what what exactly what exactly was the purpose what were you instructed to do and to me this is is it unfair to say that that is a weaselly statement the statement is weaselly yes <laughs> i think that's a fair statement to make oh, thank you okay i didn't mean to put you on the spot but i mean it, it's just it's like then why don't you tell us what what was what was your purpose in assigning the guy to follow the the jury and you know hold on, well he he wasn't going to photograph them that night okay well there was clearly a reason you didn't instruct him to follow the jury because you wanted to make sure that they all got home safely that was not the reason why you were doing <laughs> And and they just they they think people are stupid, you know. That oh, okay, well, he just never intended to do them. Nah, it was slimy. Okay, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but that's I, all right. That's that, all right. No, but that's the that is the responsible, you know, that is the responsible attitude to this. They and again, if you want to see a link to the story and the, the Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. But my head is just about to explode. It was just you could tell that that was that was the lawyer statement. It was like okay, let us be extremely precise in what we say and let us try to create an impression oh we're just we're just shocked that people could be outraged about this no weaselly is exactly the word that that describes all right this is going to be i think one of these sort of interesting conversations now let me just kind of reset it then we'll we'll go to the phone calls and the text the wisconsin is an open carry state which means the state of the law right now is if you want to arm yourself with a a shotgun or an AR-15 and you want to walk down the street with it, unless it's a weapon that is illegal, you know, sawed-off barrel, or you are not legally allowed to possess the weapon, you can can do that. And this Rittenhouse ruling, if the law isn't changed, now means, the way I interpret it, now I'm not encouraging this, but if that is in fact the law, you could have gang members, you know, again, uh, let, let's let's take it out of Wisconsin. Let, let's, you know, Los Angeles deals with the Crips and the Bloods, these notorious, notorious gang members. And so if you had the Crips and Bloods in, in Milwaukee, what you could have is the Crips and the Bloods could arm themselves with AR-15 rifles and shotguns and just, you know, walk down Wisconsin Avenue carrying these, these guns. All right. Is this is this a good thing? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Does our Second Amendment right to, to possess firearms, is it absolute? Or can you put limits saying, all right, there's certain situations where the possession of the gun in this public place creates a public disturbance? And, and yeah, we're not saying you can't have a gun for hunting, and we're not saying you can't have a gun for self-defense, but maybe walking down Wisconsin Avenue at, at 12 noon, brandishing, brandishing a shotgun, 
um, with you and your pals, maybe that's not the best thing. 855-616-1620. And I guess I, I am concerned about the fallout from the Rittenhouse thing if this becomes a, more of a prevalent thing that everybody decides, well, hey, you know, everybody's going to be bringing guns to these different protests, so let's all bring guns to the protest. 855-616-1620. Okay, let's start with Ken and Greenfield. Ken, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Oh, Nicolay alumni here. Oh, great. What year? Um, what it year? Started, it's it's uh, 76. Okay, outstanding. What do you think? Okay, we started off about the guy walking across the street from the protesters, you know, down at the courthouse there. You know what? You got, you have, both of them, both sides have their rights. The people on the steps have the rights to the First Amendment. The guy walking with the gun in the media, and he's got his rights to the Second Amendment. We may not like what other people are doing with that with their amendment, but they they do have the right to do it. Can is it and as far as well? Can, let me ask you this: Is it okay. is it absolute? For example, you you can't you, you can't carry a bazooka. For example, you can't possess a bazooka. You know, right. unless you've got a special registration. And I guess even even as a Second Amendment advocate. Doesn't it, it trouble you if, let, let's use my, my example, if all of a sudden all the, all the street gangs decide that they're now going to arm themselves and, and walk up and down the, the streets of our community armed to, to the teeth, displaying shotguns and rifles and things like that? I mean, do we, does the Second Amendment really say we, we have to have that? Because well, wouldn't that be intimidating for most people? I mean, I don't know about you, but if I pull into, I don't know if I go to park my car on Main Street, USA, and all of a sudden I see eight or ten guys with with shotguns walking around. I, I, I'm going to be I'm going to be put in fear for my life. You're you're going to be concerned about it, but I this is something I tell everybody: criminals don't want you to see their guns beforehand. If you see somebody open carrying a, a, a sidearm, or the, even the guys walking with the rifles, you know what? They're not hiding nothing. Those aren't the people you got to worry about. The criminals will never want you to see their guns right up front. You're not going to see it until they pull it out and they're going to rob you or do carjack you. So your your you know, premise that, would be that, that the people who are carrying the guns really none of them would, would have a bad purpose. So in my in my example, let, let's take the Crips, Crips and the Bloods, these, these street gangs. If they suddenly decide they're going to arm themselves and start walking through the community. That that doesn't make the community feel less safe. But what, but when do you feelings don't trump rights, and that's just perspective. What people see when they see somebody with a gun, and that's because the the guy with the gun has always been the bad guy. What about the protesters? They if you watch them videos, a lot of people in that crowd they were armed too. Yeah, no and thanks. Well, right, and, doesn't become no, no thanks. Okay, okay, I get, I get the point. I guess yes, that's. See, the, the whole purpose, and I was one of these guys who for years and years was one of the big advocates for, for example, for concealed carry. And the argument that I made, Ken, was exactly the argument just you made. I said, look, law-abiding citizens who go about the course of, of registering and carrying these firearms the, the, in the concealed fashion so they can protect themselves and things, they're not part of the crime problem. And I think... I've been largely proven to be correct. I'm not saying you never have a shooting by the concealed carry person, but but you you rarely do. But 
but this is that that whole this takes that to this whole next level it's not somebody you know who's got a permit with a, a you know a gun that's you know the, that's you know under their sweater or something you know these are whether it's armed militia people or gang members that decide to arm themselves, I mean, are we really at, at a point and where where we we have to say, okay, well, we think it's a good thing because you've got the Second Amendment. We we think that it's an absolute right for people to, I don't know, to to show up Main Street USA. Hey, we're you know we're having the Whitefish Bay Christmas Parade that's coming up, and hey, let's let's go out and let's let's all grab our shotguns or let's all grab our AR-15 rifles and put on our flak jackets and let's you know walk up and down the, the sidewalks. I mean, is that does the Second Amendment say that you, you have to be able to do that? And yes, I appreciate that we have the right to bear arms. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. John on the north side. Okay. John, John, you're on the air, John. John, hello. Hi, John. Hello, John. You're on hi. WTMJ. Hi, John. Hi, hi. Okay, my thought is this: um, they, the court's okay for you to have a gun. So I mean, it's sixteen, seventeen years old. So yeah, what is the problem? You know what I mean? You know, but but as long as it's going to be fair, you know, if a white boy can do it, so can a black boy, so can a you know a, 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 a Mexican, you know. So, well, I mean, yeah, let, you know, I don't, let, let, John, let's take race out of this. Do you? I mean, I don't care white, black, brown. Oh, okay. Do All you right, think okay. it's a good I, I idea agree. for seventeen-year-old kids or or twenty-year-olds to just un, just be? I don't know, walking through protests, for example, would you use that as an example, just walking through protests carrying shotguns or carrying rifles. I, I just It's wrong. It's, it, that's wrong. I don't think it should be, but uh, but the court's just okay. They, they said that, they, you know, I mean, you know, Wittenhouse got away with it. They, they, they took it out. They threw that out. So yeah. well, I guess maybe that, I'm not understanding it right. If you can make me understand it, you know, I mean, everybody should be able to carry them. Well, I, now, guess, I, don't, I don't think it's right. Okay. Well, I guess my reaction. Thanks for calling, John. I guess my reaction is is maybe we need to maybe we need to to take a, a step back and say, all right, it is the Second Amendment. It, and and I, I appreciate the Second Amendment. I appreciate the right to bear arms. But in but but is this this sort of absolute thing? Because I I, I will tell you, I believe one of the reasons the Rittenhouse jury is out as long as they are is because there are people there that are looking at this and saying. Look, I, I understand the concept of self-defense, but if he hadn't showed up armed to the teeth, none of this would, would have happened. He wouldn't have been in the position where he had to defend himself, and he wouldn't have been in a, had the ability to use this kind of deadly force. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with this because I, I don't want to see this stuff happen again, and I don't want to see it to be a commonplace thing where you have a bunch of people, for example, you know, show up at the Whitefish Bay Christmas Parade, you know, carrying shotguns, and somebody says something to somebody, and next thing you know, you've got somebody shooting the, the firing off the, the the shotgun and things like that. I, I, it, it, you do. I think that you you there's got to be a balance somewhere. And I guess I, I don't understand that this idea that, well, it, it's it, you, we've got a right to do it. So we have this absolute right to do it. So, yeah, as, as long as we're carrying our, our shotgun or our AR-15, and I'm, I'm not trying to pick on the AR-15, as long as we're carrying our long rifle, if we want to walk down the public streets, if it makes other people uncomfortable, you know, too bad, you know, so sad, to which it's like, okay, 
is this an absolute right? And, and can you restrict it in some fashion to still allow people to own firearms and self-defense and hunting and target shooting, but not necessarily walk down the, the streets of our communities, you know, armed to the teeth, ready for whatever? Because, I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen at the Whitefish Bay Christmas Parade that would generate a need for somebody to carry a, a, a shotgun. But where do you draw the line? Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Okay, so here's a text. Jeff, you're using as an example taking AR-15s to patrol Christmas parades. We're not talking Christmas parades. We're talking riots and where there is a need to defend property and community and where there's unlawful activity that's going unchecked. Okay, I understand that. But but think about the, the bigger context. I mean, we're saying right now that people, okay, maybe you feel all right, that the people that showed up in Kenosha on that third night were justified in having the guns. But if the point is unchecked, let's carry guns everywhere, there's nothing to stop at all people from, again, showing up at the Whitefish Bay Christmas Parade or your local farmer's market that's held in the public square, you know, and, and carrying those guns. And it's not a riot situation. It's just here, we're we're, we're going to carry our, our weapons and we're going to march all around. I mean, is that really... Is that really the society that we want to live in? 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Keith. Keith, you're on WTMJ. Hey, how's it going? Hi, Keith. What do you think? Well, I just I was listening to you discuss the various groups and gangs that could potentially carry guns. Mm-hmm. And what I think you pulled off, you know, um, very black related gangs never said anything about poor or uh, proud boys carrying okay. guns okay the other white groups that carry okay. guns i very biased well okay i agree i agree i don't think anybody should be carrying guns what do you think you agree <laughs> i well i agree I, and i i agree with that with with you know underage and adults we don't need guns just walking around on the street for no particular reason okay well that's the point now i, I that that's the point and i again if, if you want to racialize i was trying I, I was actually trying to draw the contrast between rittenhouse and i understand some people want to racialize the rittenhouse case and oh this is this white guy and this let, let's just be honest this is white guy and if it was a black guy it would have been treated completely differently i, I understand that but I, I guess in my example, I was trying, if, if you want to believe that, you know, gangs are predominantly black, okay, I, I'm just trying to draw these examples about, you know, if if you think it's okay for Rittenhouse, would you think it's okay if you had the Crips or Bloods that were doing it? Or if you want to use your example, fine. If you think it's the Proud Boys and they're wandering through the streets carrying loaded shotguns or AR-15s, would you think that that would be appropriate? Use any of these examples if it makes you more comfortable. But the idea is... I, the, the idea is I, I think we need to kind of work out this balancing that's there because I don't want to see something like happened in Kenosha happen again, also in much more, more benign circumstances. I mean, you know, typically it's always been that, you know, you, you show up with that, that shotgun or you show up with the AR-15 and you're walking in a public place. That That's always been a basis for at least some you know, general sort of charge about, you know, creating a disturbance or disturbing the peace or something like that, because we made this decision that under those circumstances, the presence of the firearms creates a disturbance. 
is that really such a violation of the Second Amendment? Or is the flip side that we just have to say, okay, we're going to let anybody carry guns in the public square anytime they want. Does that really serve to make us safer? Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Just one, actually two quick final thoughts before we move on to the news and something else. It's um, one of our, our texters points out, Jeff, you know, remember shortly after the new open carry, concealed carry law went into place, somebody did show up at the farmer's market in downtown Appleton with an AR-15 and a flak jacket. I'm a gun owner. I think this type of stuff can cause problems. Common sense does need to come into play. So that's number one. Number two, and I don't think you can stress this enough. Part of the thing that led to the chaos that occurred that third night of the riots in Kenosha was the fact that you had civilian authorities that absolutely lost control of the streets on Monday and Tuesday. And that then fed into this desire, we need to have people that are going to show up to protect stuff because the civilian authority can't handle it. That's one of the reasons why moving forward, you can't fool around with this stuff. And and for law enforcement and for the governor who controls the National Guard, that the lesson has to be you've got to be prepared to respond quickly because if you allow two days of rioting, looting, destruction to go on, people are going to start to believe that that law enforcement, civilian authorities can't control things, and they are going to be more inclined to try to take the law into their own hands. And when they do that, bad things end up happening. So control the stuff in the first place, and then you don't have the environment that led to the whole Rittenhouse thing. So many lessons, so many lessons from this case, regardless of how the verdict comes out. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. One final thought on Rittenhouse before we, we move on. A number of people have asked me, so what do you think is going to happen? And, you know, you, you go broke trying to guess what, what juries are going to do in a case like this. My instinct is it's going to be either all or nothing. In, in other words, the jurors are going to agree that all this stuff happens and it was a legitimate exercise of self-defense or they, they don't buy the self-defense argument and they end up, you know, convicting him. I, so my guess is it's going to be all or nothing. And if I were a betting guy, that, that's where I would go. But I, I do throw out one other theory. If if the jurors were looking for a compromise, and by the way, juries, verdicts don't have to be internally in, internally consistent. By that, I mean that you could, for example, find him, a jury could, if they wanted to, find him not guilty of one of the shootings based on self-defense, but then find him guilty of some other shooting. And you might want to say, well, no, if it was self-defense, it was all self-defense. Juries don't have to be internally consistent. And a lot of times what happens is jury verdicts are the, the product of compromise. Now, I again, I think it's either going to be all or nothing. That That's my sense. But th- there is there are some other possibilities. Like, for example, I, I know that there's a lot of people out there that just see this as clearly a self-defense sort of case, or at least keep in mind that the prosecution has to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Then that that's the burden. So the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it wasn't self-defense. That That's sort of the way it stands. So, I mean, I understand that people could say, well... You know, no, it, it, this is this is self-defense, or at least the prosecution hasn't met its burden of proof. But my guess is that there are, are some people there, and, and maybe you're one of these people, who look at this and say, all right, regardless 
uh, of what the law is, and regardless of what self-defense is, here you have a 17-year-old kid who really shouldn't have been in that situation in the first place and certainly shouldn't have been carrying a gun in that circumstance. And because of some of his behavior, he put himself in a situation where he was being chased, he quickly got over his head, he panicked and did all that stuff. And, and yeah, we understand the self-defense argument. I'm trying to put myself in the mind of some jurors, but the bottom line is you've got two people that are dead, you've got a third person you know, who had his arm shot, and you had other people whose life was, lives were put in danger by this conduct. And I, I, I could see some jurors saying, Look, I I understand burden of proof. I understand reasonable doubt. I understand self-defense. But we can't just let him walk away scot-free for what he did. I can see some jurors doing that. So if you had a, a schism, if you had a divide between the this is clearly self-defense and, well, okay, we understand the self-defense argument, but he's the one that sort of started all this in motion. And you were looking for some compromise. I'm just throwing this out as a theory. The count that I have been watching all along is count two. Count two is, it's not one of the homicide charges. It's the recklessly endangering safety. Count two is the charge that involves the the videographer from the Daily Caller who, you know, testified he was a witness to the, the first shooting when Rittenhouse shot Rosenbaum. And, you know, he testified that, you know, as Rittenhouse fires, there's bullets like flying. And he says, you know, a couple just missed me. If a jury was looking for a compromise, and again, I, I think it's going to be all or nothing, but this would be one of the counts that you could see them seizing on saying, okay, we're... This wasn't a case where this McGinnis, the videographer, he didn't do anything. He wasn't chasing Rittenhouse. He wasn't attacking Rittenhouse. He was just kind of in the background. But when Rittenhouse starts firing off all these rounds, it, it puts it in it puts his life in in jeopardy. And so, you know, the, the defense argued, well, if it's if it's self defense for one, it's self defense for everything. And, and I understand where they're coming from on that. I'm just suggesting that if you have a jury that's looking for a compromise and doesn't want to convict him on all the counts, but rather, you know, still wants to find some way of holding him accountable. And you don't want to fool around with like the lesser included things, which really bring in the self-defense. You could you could look at something like account two. And again, I, I think more likely than not, it's going to be all or nothing. But if you did want to compromise, that's one of the counts where I could say, all right, you, you, you people could say, well, you know, he was defending himself. Maybe we think against the chasing guy from Rosenbaum. But this other guy, McGinnis, the guy in the background, he wasn't doing anything. And his life was endangered by this conduct. And it might not be logically consistent with the the concept of letting go acquitting him on the self-defense thing but you could at least make that argument and i just throw that out there it's bottom line is nobody knows for sure what a jury is going to do or alternatively when the jury is going to come back we haven't heard much if anything i don't think we've heard anything from them yet today okay when we come back i want to talk about a new lawsuit against the kettle moraine school district and we're going to discuss who's right and who's wrong stick around Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. The world has gone crazy. <laughs> it, 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 it just... It just has on, on so many different levels. And, you know, I mean, I started off this program by, by talking about the, the reason why 
you know, people hate journalists and hate the media is because when they pull stunts like the NBC reporters did yesterday and trying to trail the jury and, you know, they can try to weasel around it. But it, it was just it was a slimy stunt to, to pull the one of the reasons why I think people have such distaste for public school systems is because they, they do things like this. And I, I mean, look, I, I don't have kids, right? My, my grandkids are, are, are all in public schools and stuff like that. But, but I, I still, I cannot imagine if I was a parent dealing with this thing. Now, back when I was growing up, back in the day, you know, we, we didn't deal with these issues of, of the whole transgender thing where you have, you know, you know, it, we, we treated boys as boys and girls were girls. That, that was it. Now I understand that things have evolved over the years and you, you have situations where you have kids that are born, somebody that's born as a boy that identifies as a girl and all those sorts of things. And, and it raises a, a whole wide range of issues that, that are out there. Now I personally believe that if I were a parent and I had a child who was in a situation like that, it's something that, you, you know, you, you really sit down and you talk to the kid uh, about and, and you figure this out. Is this is this a real situation if you've got a, a son who, you know, a, a, who a biologically a boy who identifies as a girl? It, it's it's something that you work through together and, you know, maybe you see doctors and you all, all this stuff to, to try to figure this out. And I guess my reaction would be as, as a parent. It would be, well, I, I just don't think the child at the age of 10 or 12 is young enough, is old enough to make that decision on, on their own. Now, it might be as the parent, after you've, cons- con- you know, after you've consulted with the doctors and the psychiatrists and stuff like that, you determine, yes, yes, in fact, my 14-year-old, who was born biologically a, a boy, really does identify as a girl. So you, in consult, you the parents, in consultation with the kid and in consultation with the doctors or whatever, you decide, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to begin the process of gender, of changing genders, and we're going to change the kid's name, we're going to do all that stuff. If you as a, now I think if I were the parent, I would be inclined to say, well, you know, we're going to monitor this thing, but, but candidly, at the age of 12 or 13 or 14 or 15, you really don't know these things for sure. But but that's me. Maybe, you know, again, you're talking to the psychiatrist and stuff, and they say, no, there's no question that this, you know, this is the issue, so we need to begin the process of of, trans, of, of making the, the, the change. Okay. Mom and dad decide to do that, that with in consultation, again, with the kids. That's fine. And then you go to the school and you say, okay, well, this is our situation, and, you know, we want to change the name of Jeff, you know, Jeff is identifying as a female, so please, we're not going to refer to him as Jeff anymore. We're going to call him Josette or, or, or whatever. And, you know, you, you work that out. But that's something that's done with the parents. In the Kettle Moraine School District, apparently what they will let you do is they will allow the kids, including like 12-year-old kids, they will allow the kids to change their names and gender pronouns at school without parental consent. So in other words, if the 12-year-old, so what's that, like sixth grade? If the 12-year-old comes in and says, you know what, I'm, I, I'm, 
I know I, I was born biologically a boy. I, I know you, you've referred to me as Jeff all these years, but you know what? I really identify as a girl, and from now on, I, I don't want to be referred to as Jeff. I want to be referred, I want to be called Josette, and I, I want to deal with this situation in this, in this fashion. The school district, Kettle Moraine, will apparently say, okay, well, we will do this without including the parents in discussion and getting the consent of the parents. So if the student comes in and wants to alter their name or pronouns, the school, number one, won't notify the parents that this is going on. Number two, won't ask for the parents' permission, and in many cases, apparently actively conceals the situation from the parents. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Will, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, has just filed a, a lawsuit um, against the Kettle Moraine School District for precisely this issue. All right, is there any way in God's green earth that a school district should do this with minor children without the knowledge of and or consent of the parents. 855-616-1620. And see, to me, th- this isn't the question of, all right, you know, do, do you have situations where you know they're, they're biologically a boy and they identify as a girl or, or vice versa? That, that's not it. This is a question of the school district deciding to go behind the parents' back and accede to the requests of, in this case, let's take an example of a 12 or 13-year-old who maybe doesn't really know their own mind. Who in their right mind seriously would think it's a good idea for a school district to do something like this without involving the parents and getting their consent. 855-616-1620. And this is one of these situations where I say, I mean, I don't know how this lawsuit's going to turn out, but if it's, if it's anything other than a slam dunk win for the parents saying, hey, we have a right, we have a right to be heard and our wishes followed in this case, well, there's something really wrong. 855-616-1620. We discuss. 855-616-1620, Sue in Heartland. Hi, Sue. What do you think? Hi. My position is that the, the worst thing that these parents could have done would be to file this lawsuit to control how their kid is addressed. Kids at 10, 12 years old, even before that, they know who they are and what they are. And it's not up to their parents or the court or anyone else to tell them, no, this is what you are. You're not who you're telling you are. You're something else. I think that the, whatever judge gets this case should, high, or should appoint a guardian ad litem to make sure that this kid has the proper supports in place at home and at school to make sure that, that they can work through whatever they're going through and not have it played out in front of all of us. Okay. The worst thing those parents could have done. Are you serious? You're not kidding with this call. You think that if a 10-year-old, come, a 10-year-old, the parents of a 10-year-old who says, I, I identify, I'm, I'm biologically a boy, in my example, and I identify as a girl, and the, the parents of the 10-year-old have no right to say to the 10-year-old, honey, we just don't think you're, you're mature enough to know this and make this decision, and, and we want input. You don't think the parents have any right to do that? You think that you have to follow what the 10-year-old says? 
I think they need to talk it through with that kid and not bring a lawsuit so that we're all talking about this kid. This will probably go nationwide. They need to talk to their kid. They need to get their kid into therapy and talk through, this is why I feel this way. This is what I'm thinking. And work through it. Well, but don't they, but, but but don't, but don't, but don't, oh, thanks. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll let you go with the dog. I know how that goes. But, okay, look, here's the thing. You've, unless the school system is going to take over all the responsibilities for raising this, this child, I, this idea that the school district is going to override or maybe even act, let's say mom and dad, you've got an impressionable, impressionable nine-year-old who you know is born a girl and thinks she's a boy and and you know maybe as she gets older maybe that'll turn out to be the case okay and maybe this will be one of those situations where you got to make the change but to do it behind the back of the parents this is something that the parent the school system shouldn't be saying we're not going to tell your parents sure you want to be called Josette instead of Jeff fine this is what we're going to do and we're going to treat you as a girl and we're not going to tell your parents and we're not going to get any sort of parental input on on this to me it's the parents who are ultimately responsible for raising that child and to go behind the parents back or not consult with the parents is incredibly incredibly irresponsible and yeah I'll go back to my larger point I, I think you are absolutely correct there are some kids at the age of eight or nine or ten who probably know exactly gee I was born as a boy but I'm really a girl and there's probably some of that but there's a lot of kids that are just confused in many cases you haven't even gone through puberty yet they are impressionable and they are not in a position to make that decision it's why we don't allow 12 year olds to drive cars. We don't allow 12-year-olds to drink. We don't allow 12-year-olds to sign contracts. We don't allow 12-year-olds to get married. And yet, we're going to allow 12-year-olds to decide that they're really a boy instead of a girl without any input from their parents? Sorry, not with you on that one. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right. We've had our share of controversial issues so far in the program. This half hour is no different. Here is the deal. Now, I always I always need to go back and, and review the bidding whenever we talk about vaccines because inevitably... I get email, I get hostile emails from people on all sides of the issue. You're this anti-vax guy. You're responsible for people dying of COVID. And I, I, I'm not. I, I have been vaccinated. I believe people should get vaccinated. I encourage people to get vaccinated. I'm trying to find a time when I can get my, my COVID booster. I get the flu shot. I, I'm, I'm not anti-vaccination. I also believe that employers should have the right to say, hey, if you want to work for us, this is our condition and you need to be vaccinated. And if you decide that you don't want to get vaccinated, go with God, go find yourself a job somewhere else. I think, you know, we have that right. Where I draw the line is I do not think the government has the right to force people to to get vaccinated. I I just I think that is a, a government overreach. And I think, for example, what President Biden has done with OSHA, where OSHA is essentially forcing private employers that they have to tell people they've got to get vaccinated without without any regard for whether or not there's a necessity. Let's say you you're a private employer and all your people are working at home. 
right? Why should OSHA be able to require you to force all your employers to get all your kids, your employees to get vaccinated? If they're, in my example, they're, they're not having contact with any of the other people in the workplace. I just think it, it's an overreach, but it doesn't mean that I am anti-vaccination. It's just when the government comes in and starts mandating things, that's where I have a philosophical problem with this. Okay, so one of the things that we know is that municipalities all across the state have a problem finding poll workers. It, it's, it's kind of a thankless job. And in the era of COVID, it's an even more thankless job to find people who are, are willing to work and be exposed to, you know, people who are coming in. All right. In the, in Madison, city of Madison, they have just announced a new policy that says anybody who wants to work at the polls must be vaccinated. And their thinking is, well, if you come and you're a poll worker, you are a temporary city employee. Effectively, we require city employees to be vaccinated. So you have to be vaccinated for that one day that you're going to be working at the polls or the two days that you are working at the polls. We're not going to allow for any exemptions. We're not going to allow, for example, for somebody who is unvaccinated to have to wear a mask. We're, you know, we're not allowing that. We're saying if you want to be a poll worker, you have to be vaccinated. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Predictably, this, this issue is breaking down along party lines. You've got a number of Republicans who are saying that this is uh, effectively an effort by Madison to try to, you know, keep Republicans from working at the polls because the argument is more Republicans tend to be unvaccinated than Democrats. So th- this is sort of a stealth strategy to force Republicans out of that situation. Now, candidly, I think there's a lot of Republicans who are, in fact, vaccinated. But let's talk about the basic premise, because while this is Madison, this could be adopted, I guess, by other clerks across the across the state. You know, is it reasonable to say for the people who are going to come in and who are going to be handing you the ballots, is it reasonable for the city, the county, whatever the municipality is, to say you must be vaccinated or we are not going to allow you to serve a, as a poll wa- worker? 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, keep in mind, there's other things that Madison could have done. They could have said, all right, you know, if you're unvaccinated, you're going to have to do what they they do to get into the grounds at Summerfest. You know, you have to show that within 48 hours or the last 72 hours or what it is, you have proof of of a negative COVID test. They could say, all right, if you're if you're going to be working at the polls, you've, you've got to wear you've got to wear your mask. There's all sorts of things that they could have done. And what they've apparently done is they've said, OK, you've got to be vaccinated, which means non-vaccinated people cannot volunteer to work at the polls. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this the right approach? What do you think? Now, for me, as somebody who is, in fact, vaccinated, I, I think, as I said earlier, I think people should get vaccinated. But I don't think it should be a requirement as to work at the polls. I think it's perfectly reasonable to put on extra conditions. Hey, if you're not vaccinated, you got to wear a mask. If you're not vaccinated, you have to show proof of a negative COVID test. I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. But to say the only way you can be a poll worker 
is to get vaccinated, again, I think is government overreach. What's the next step going to be? Is it going to be, well, you're not going to be allowed to come in and vote in person unless you can prove that you're vaccinated? Where do you, in fact, draw the line? Can they have some requirements? I would think so if they feel that it's necessary. And from the perspective of the voter, I don't know, if I was going in to, to vote um, and I knew that brief contact I was going to be having with that election official, which in all likelihood, it isn't long enough to constitute, you know, one of the, the close contacts under the CDC rules. I guess I would feel that if that person had had a negative test within 72 hours and was wearing a mask and I felt worried about it, I could wear my own mask and, and we would go and I would be fine. 855-616-1620. Is it too much to require poll workers to be vaccinated? We discuss in a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, of course it's reasonable to require poll workers to be vaccinated. What if one person unvaccinated working at the polls infected every voter due to close contact? Well, that was my my point. You're you know you're you're really not going to be in close contact with every voter. Close contact is within six feet for fifteen minutes or or more. Plus. Okay, then it says also if they weren't vaccinated, people would be less likely to vote for fear of contracting COVID. All right, well, well, my point was, wouldn't a middle ground be to do what they do for for concerts and stuff and say, all right, if you're not vaccinated, we're going to require you to have proof of, of a negative COVID test within you know 72 hours. That's the general standard. That way you don't exclude People who, for whatever reason, that 30 or 35 percent of the population or 40 percent or whatever the numbers might be, maybe even more in certain communities, you don't exclude them from being able to participate in the civic process of working at the polls. And yet you still give people a at least some assurance that the person who's sitting there, you know, doesn't have COVID. I mean, I I don't know if if I'm fully vaccinated like I am and. I know that the poll worker has either been vaccinated or has shown evidence of a negative test within 72 hours. I'm I'm comfortable with that. Wouldn't most reasonable people be? 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Tom in Racine. Tom, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How's it going? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Well, I think I'm, I'm double vaccinated. I have no problem getting vaccinated. As you, I have uh, all my vaccinations for everything. And the thing about these mandates, I agree with you 100%. They're overreaching. But as far as I know, they were short with poll workers last year. I know probably because of COVID, but they're going to be even more short probably with poll workers. And I agree with you. What's, What's the deal? If these masks are supposed to work like they say they are, why can't? You just wear a mask for the short time you're in there. If they put a mandate in that me and you have to be vaccinated to go in there, why don't why can't we just wear the masks? I think the mandates are getting out of hand, just like now they're talking about mandating truck drivers, which are in their truck by themselves all the time. If they have to go in a, a dock to deliver their stuff, sign papers, whatever, 
why can't they just wear a mask? Right. No, no thanks. For, you know, these are all fair questions. I mean, okay, look, here's the deal. I was, okay, I was in Florida last week. So last Saturday, um, jumped on a, a plane, Southwest Airline flight, 9 o'clock in the morning. And, I mean, to fly on planes now, we we don't we're not required to prove that we're vaccinated, right? I mean that you're just not you're required to wear a mask. Now again, I, I'm vaccinated. I'm sitting across the aisle from my wife, but I could have been on an airplane with somebody who was unvaccinated. But the protection is I'm wearing a mask. That person is wearing a mask, and we can sit, you know, a, across the aisle from each other, or that person can sit in the seat next to me for the poor, for a two and a half hour flight. Okay, I would, and and yet we've accepted that as a risk. We say that that that's not an unreasonable risk. You don't have to prove to be that you're vaccinated. And I guess, I mean, again, I'm perfectly comfortable traveling on planes. I am vaccinated. I had COVID. I wear the mask. All those things makes me feel comfortable in flying on the plane and sitting next to somebody who might not be vaccinated, but they're wearing the mask for the better part of the two and a half hour flight. They're also not required to prove that they tested negative for COVID within 72 hours. So I guess I look at this and say, if we let people fly on airplanes and sit in close proximity to you, why in the world wouldn't we let people I don't know, work at the polls as long as, and again, my example, you, you prove that you don't, you don't test, you haven't had COVID in the last 72 hours. If, if you're not vaccinated, wouldn't that be enough assurance? And then you can say you've got to wear a mask as well. And if I'm feeling uncomfortable, I wear the mask. And by the way, in a lot of clerk's offices, as people are pointing out, that the way this is handled now is the, the poll workers are behind plexiglass anyways. I, I guess at some point in time, and this is from my perspective as somebody who, again, you know, b- believes it's better to get people vaccinated. But if you don't, if you follow this rule and don't allow, for example, exceptions, you are preventing a huge chunk of the population, 30, 40 percent, whatever that number is. You are preventing them from performing their civic function which is, you know, working as a poll worker. And it's not like we don't have a shortage of poll workers as it is. And seriously, I mean, does anybody really think that the act of voting is going to turn into a super spreader event? It it hasn't happened before. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and text line and i'm getting some texts from people who are are saying well you know the the vaccine doesn't work and you know that there's no basis for that and people are getting the breakthrough infections i I don't i don't want to make this about whether the vaccine works or not i think most of the evidence that you see objectively says that the vast majority of people who are getting covid now are people who are unvaccinated you know maybe it's 80 20 there are breakthrough cases and the vast majority of the people who are in the hospital are people who are unvaccinated so does that mean you can't get it no i, I appreciate that but you know you're safer with the vaccine but at the same time all right we're we're not saying to people who are we're saying to people who are vaccinated you can do all this stuff and we're not creating some of these exceptions for others 855-616-1620 which is the Acunet mortgage talk and text line um let's see uh, again, a couple of people pointing out that they've been using plexiglass as well. Jeff, this is one of the reasons you can't reason with people. You give them an inch, they'll take a mile. I I think we have to figure out a way to, to balance this whole thing out because I, I here's just the reality. I was watching, there was a story in the Washington Post this morning about this. The truth is 
COVID isn't going away. That's just, that is the uncomfortable reality of this. And, you know, we've got a vaccination rate in this country of around 70%. It's more in some areas, less in others. And I, I really firmly believe that for whatever reason, people are pretty much dug in on this. And yes, will you be able to get the number of people vaccinated up a little bit? Yes. But the truth of the matter is there's always going to be people that are unvaccinated. There's always going to be people who are contracting COVID. There's always going to be the breakthrough cases of COVID. So we really need to figure out a way to, to live with this. And I know COVID's not the flu, but just like we have people that die every year when they contract the flu, I think we just have to accept that there's going to be people who die every year because they, they've contracted COVID. So we have to figure out a way to balance this. And the question becomes, can we really treat the people who have decided not to get a vaccine for whatever reason? Can we treat them as pariahs? Can we say, well, okay, you're, you can't be a poll watcher. And, and again, where is that next, where is the next level? Is the next step to say, well, Okay, we think that you pose too much of a risk being unvaccinated to let you into a public place so you can't come in and vote. And I I understand that that's a a step away from what we're talking about now. But where I mean, where is where is the law? Where where do you draw the line on things like this? Bill in Waterford. Hi, Bill. You're on WTMJ. Yes, I really think that the the inquiry is irrational because if we have poll worker A who's vaccinated and poll worker B who's unvaccinated, either of those people, A, at the moment could have COVID and B, could be in a position to transmit COVID. So whether they're vaccinated or not Mm -hmm. doesn't make a difference. Yeah, so your your point would be you don't even need to have the you, you don't even think you need the proof of the uh, of the, cl- the clearance from COVID for seventy two hours. If people are concerned about this, you get yourself vaccinated, you wear your mask, you show up, you you vote, and then you move on. Or you don't. Well, if go- it's a clearance, if it's a clearance of that they're not having COVID, it doesn't. Then everybody should have a test prior to 72 hours. Yeah. Because again, people who are vaccinated can, can have COVID just like people who are unvaccinated. Right. Yeah. Can, can you can have, have, right. You can have the breakthrough cases. No, thanks for the call. And I guess, the, I mean, the thing that I would follow up as a supplement on that is if somebody is so concerned, and I'm not, I'm not going to argue that this is an irrational fear, but if somebody is so concerned that if I, let's play this out, I, I show up, at City Hall to vote on Election Day. I'm going to have a very, very limited contact with with the person that's giving me the ballot. I mean, probably, you know, less you have more chance, I would argue, standing in a line on Election Day with people who may or may not be vaccinated, may or may not be sick. You have much more chance of getting COVID from them than you would from this incidental contact that you're going to have with the election worker, which is going to be a, a matter of, of seconds you know, maybe a minute or two at most, but most likely just a matter of, of seconds. So, I mean, my argument would be if you're if you're really so legitimately concerned that, that this contact to the point that Bill was making, because even if somebody has been vaccinated, they they might be one of those rare 
but still it happens from time to time, breakthrough cases, then then maybe the response is that, hey, maybe you shouldn't be out in public in the first place and you shouldn't be standing in that line because you don't know who you're going to be in line with. And if that is really your concern, well, that's why we have the early voting. That's why we have the absentee voting. That's why we do all this other stuff so people can vote but not have to have that sort of contact. Now, I just think that this is I think this is an overreach, uh, and I think that there's ways you could do it without prohibiting people who have, for whatever reasons, decided that they choose not to get vaccinated without essentially treating them as pariahs and still allowing them to work at the polls. All right. I'm just about out of time. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll find out what John and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News.